It's good to be with you guys today. And um, today we will conclude um, what I've been talking on the past several months in 2 Peter chapter 3. And you should have some notes close to you. If you're online, you can, should be able to pull those up and track with us. The day of the Lord, 2 Peter 3, 10 through 18. The day of the Lord. Number one, the day of the Lord, it will come unexpectedly. Verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens, when it says heavens, it's talking about the skies. If it was talking about where God resides, it would probably say the third heavens, a different dimension. It says, the heavens, the skies will pass away with a terrible noise. The very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. In this one verse, Peter is giving us the 30,000-foot view of what's going to happen. Packed inside that verse are three of the main occurrences that will accompany the day of the Lord. There's hundreds of things that will go down at that time, but he gives kind of a 30,000-foot view This will happen. He'll come unexpectedly. He'll come as a thief. There's going to be destruction. It'll end in destruction of the wicked. The day of the Lord will come unexpectedly. It'll come as a thief upon unbelievers. A thief. You know, thieves do not tend to call ahead or to send you a Google invite. They they don't ask if Wednesday at 9 a.m. works well for you. I remember our family taking a family vacation, and we were driving south, and we stopped for the night in Paducah, Kentucky. And and I didn't get an alert on my phone or anything. We just found out the next day we're driving, we continue driving, and all of a sudden, where's Cassie's wallet? Where's my wife's wallet at? It's gone. And we realized when we got to our destination, and I looked outside, I got out of the vehicle, and I looked at the door, and I thought, oh, Someone wedged something in here and broke into, I could see marks all over where they'd opened the door and they got in and they'd stolen Cassie's wallet. So we're on vacation and all of our vacation money's gone. And that thief didn't even tell us he was going to do that. (laughs) Unexpectedly. The Lord will come suddenly and unmistakably let everyone everywhere know that the time is here. The beginning of judgment has arrived. It will be such a surprise. It'll be a sudden beginning that will ultimately culminate in destruction. The day of the Lord is the beginning of the end for the wicked and the worldly system and the current, um, the culture that currently pervades. Usually the word day, when it's found in the Bible, it's, it's talking about a 12-hour day or a 24-hour day. But when it's put in a phrase, um, when it's part of a phrase like in the day of or day of the Lord or that day, It uniquely describes not a 24-hour time period, but rather an era, a specific season of sorts or an age to come. And you and I, we we probably use that, you know, in the days of our youth or in the day of our youth. Um, Speaking not of a particular day, but a specific segment of years contrasted to our present time. This happens, um, Solomon, when he's, when he's writing Ecclesiastes, he does this. Um, Ecclesiastes 12.3 says, in the day, he's, and what he's talking about right here is old age. So he's, when we get old, that's what he's talking about. 
He says, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, talking about the hands, and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim, and he goes on, he's talking about old age, but he says, in the day. We currently live in the day of grace, you and I. This is the period, the time of grace. Our present age is characterized as such. Um, Grace and mercy are offered to any and all who will receive it. Jesus died for the sins of the world, offered his life as a ransom for sinners, providing a door between earth and God's paradise. But soon will be an age of judgment for those who've rejected the graces and mercies of God. This age will be known as the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? It's a time of reckoning, a time of judgment, a time of destruction. Oftentimes people argue, you know, if God existed, then why, if he exists, why are, are, why doesn't, why aren't the bad people punished? Why does evil continue? Why was a gunman allowed to shoot a whole bunch of kids in Texas last week? Either God doesn't seem to care or he's powerless to do anything. There's no justice. Not true. The day of judgment is scheduled. And it has been forecasted in nearly every book and letter of scripture. The day of the Lord is spoken of in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in Joel, in Obadiah, in Ezekiel, in Amos, in Zechariah. That's just the Old Testament. It's the prominent theme throughout the Old Testament, and it carries into the New, that there is coming a day of reckoning. Isaiah 13, 9 through 11, Isaiah speaking, 700 years before Jesus is born. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. He will destroy its sinners from it, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. There's so much that I have yet to learn about the day of the Lord and how all the pieces fit together. But this morning, I'd like to just present a few of, a few of the hundreds of scriptures that speak to the day of the Lord. And I'm confident that God will grant us um, understanding. And as he does, it will cause us to marvel. It will cause us to grow in our faith, uh, cause us to recalibrate our lives and align ourselves with him and the mission that's before us in the present. In our main text there, Peter, 2 Peter uh, 3.10, he's telling us that um, the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly, it'll come as a thief, and it will culminate in destruction. The destruction will be a complete destruction. He says the skies will disappear, the elements will be dissolved, and the earth and its works will not be found. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. We'll touch on that a little bit later this morning. But for now, let's jump into the New Testament and some of the passages there that speak to the day of the Lord. John, one of Jesus' disciples, um, and really the last one living of the 12, 
is exiled to the island of Patmos, and it's there that he writes uh, the book, the letter of Revelation. And in Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17, he writes, I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free person hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Leading up to that passage, John is recording all that he sees happening on the earth up until that point. Conflict, famine, scarcity, death, martyrdom. These things are being, have been being played out since Jesus left earth, all these things. But here in the sixth seal, the writer sees and he talks about the day of the Lord. He talks about cosmic disturbances going on. He talks about all the people being filled with the dread, saying, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for great is the day of his wrath. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? It's an unexpected beginning of judgment. And the people, including professing atheists, inevitably recognize that the time of reckoning has come, and they are aware that it is the Lamb who is coming. Jesus, if you're not aware, Jesus is known as the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, known as the Lamb because of purity Uh, known as the lamb because of his innocence, his sacrifice. It's also known as the Lion of Judah, who has the power and authority to judge all people. Paul speaks about the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 4. One of many instances that Paul talks about the day of the Lord. He says, but concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Oh, we've heard that from Peter. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So Paul's saying here that prior to the day of the Lord, the message on the street and and the proclamation in the world is peace and safety. Interesting, right? It may well look um, uh, thousands of years of conflict and disparity, and the world will will think that it has things figured out. People will think that there's an air of peace and safety that's lined up for them, that they've lined up for themselves. It may well look like a one-world government. 
In fact, the Bible says that it, it will. There may be a push for everyone to become trackable. Uh, medical records, licenses, bank accounts, criminal history, their daily online activity, their location, their travel. A worldwide grid of sorts to ensure safety, peace and safety. May look like that. While the popular phrase of the time leading up to the day of the Lord is peace and safety, Christ followers may experience a great deal of persecution at that time due to their stances on issues that the world deems unacceptable. True Christians will be portrayed as resistance or as threats. It may well make sense to the world that Christ followers should be silenced or turned into the authorities or put to death. However, Peter says, he says at this precise time, this time period, when people are adamantly proclaiming peace and safety and when many Christians may be undergoing elevated persecution, that sudden destruction will come upon the wicked. He says, like labor pains. You guys know what that's like? No, guys don't know what that's like. You girls know what that's like, some of you. When labor begins, there's a sudden understanding that there is no turning back. (laughs) Something has started that cannot be reversed. The initial labor pains are not the delivery itself. The first labor pain does not reflect the outcome, but signals the outcome. Maybe the water breaks or there's a noticeable contraction, unlike the prior contractions of the Braxton Hicks variety. Whatever the case, labor by design intensifies. It signals that something is coming that cannot be stopped. In the case of labor, the quantity and duration of intensity will increase up and until the time of delivery. And this would be the correct understanding of the day of the Lord, that it will begin suddenly, and once it does, there will be an inevitable sequence leading to a certain end. The people may not die instantaneously, but a dread will fall upon all people knowing that the judgment is beginning and that it is unavoidable. And Paul says, and none of them shall escape. Who will not escape? The people of the world. They can't skip judgment. Can't take a pass. Can't say, not interested. Not one citizen on earth will escape I'm so glad that I'm not a citizen of earth. Aren't you? Yeah. So what do you mean you're not a citizen of earth? I'm a foreigner passing through. I'm, a, I'm an ambassador, but my citizenship is in heaven with God. Right. This world is not my home. I'm only here on active duty for the king. Yeah. And so are you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and have been born again. Philippians 3.20, Paul says the same thing. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows this contrast. He says, um, in what we were reading um, in Thessalonians, he says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that this day should not overtake you as a thief. It will not overtake us as a thief. It'll still be unexpected, but not as a thief. We will be filled with joy. The sons of light and the sons of day will be ecstatic. The daughters of light, the daughters of day, will be ecstatic when this moment occurs. We'll be filled with unspeakable joy because we've been longing for this day. 
We love the light and we love the truth and we eagerly await the return of Jesus. We'll shout with joy at the first rays of dawn, the first sign of his coming, while the world and those who hate the truth will abhor and will tremble at the first rays of light. They'll be terrified when Jesus comes. The sign of the Son of Man appearing in the heavens, and they will be terrified. They are creatures of the dark, of the night, afraid of the light, and unbelievers will dread the day of the Lord. Believers long for the light. We long for the coming of Christ. We can't wait until the night is over. We can't wait for the day of the Lord, if only it were here now. And the first rays of his appearing will be the signal of the beginning of a glorious time for the church, for we who are God's children. Our mission will be complete and we get to go home. We get to go home. And right now we're in the midst of a battlefield. It's a war zone of sorts. Ephesians 6 talks about that. But the day will signify victory, reward, and recompense. And the church says, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come. Let's look at another reference. Jesus in Matthew speaks of the day of the Lord. Matthew 24 36 through 44. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, He would have watched and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Unexpected again, an hour you do not expect. No one knows the day or the hour. The phrase there, as the days of Noah were. What were those days like? They were very dark. Genesis 6, 5, I don't think we have this one on the screen. It says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of their thoughts, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, their heart, was only evil continually. Their only thought at all times was only for evil all the time. That's the place that the world had come to. As the days of Noah were, so it it will be dark at the end of time. Jesus, I remember him saying, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? It was rhetorical, and I think he will. I think other scriptures show that he will. But he's showing again this idea. It's also a theme here, the days of Noah, also a theme of peace and safety. People are eating and marrying. going. Life is normal. Things are great, it appears. 
It's also unexpected, though they were warned. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, but the culture ridiculed him. They mocked him. Same will be with the coming of the Lord. Even though the church has warned the world, they will mock and ridicule our word and expectation. We, we talked about last, um, last month when we were looking at 2 Peter. And they will, they will mock and say, where is, where is the coming of Jesus? For since the, things, since the world began, things have always been the same. They will mock that idea that Jesus is coming again. And it says, and they'll do so because they willfully forget about creation and they willfully forget about Noah's flood. They determine to forget that and then they mock the return of Christ. Again, note that when the door to the ark was closed and the rain began to pour, the people of Noah's day did not die when the first raindrop hit them, when it first fell to earth, but they knew that they were doomed. The rain and the bursting of the deeps were the beginning of the end for them in that age. There was an unmistakable awareness, like labor pains, there was a sudden sudden beginning with growing intensity until the intended end, an inevitable conclusion. That phrase, as the days of Noah were, what, what happened to Noah? God took Noah into the ark. Before God poured out judgment, Noah and his family were taken into the ark, and God closed the door. Noah and his family were protected and preserved from God's judgment being poured out. And Paul writes in verse 40 that when the day of the Lord comes, one man in the field will be taken and another left. One woman grinding at the mill will be taken and the other one will be left. There are, there are many end-time beliefs concerning Scripture and varying interpretations of how it will go down. And, and I have had many different viewpoints over the years and switched. And then I, I read other scriptures and I switch to other viewpoints and, and it's a work in progress. But from what I currently see in scripture, it appears to me that Christians will likely go through escalating persecution the closer we get to the day of the Lord. A number will likely be killed for their beliefs and yet those Christians who remain up until the day of the Lord will at that time be taken out of the world before God begins to pour out his, his judgment upon the earth. One additional wrinkle to, that, um, to that, that exact moment is found in Revelation 7, which speaks of 144,000 Jewish people who, are, who will remain on earth but be sealed and protected from the impending plagues. They will yet serve a purpose as the day of the Lord unfolds. And that talk would be for another time. But what's important now is that Jesus tells us to be ready. Be ready for the return of the Son of Man. Be ready. May our hearts be ready. May we not get tangled up in the cares and concerns of this world, the deceitfulness of riches. Let us not get choked out by temporal things, by worldly things, greed, self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-reliance, self-preservation. May our hearts remain humble before the Lord and dependent upon Him. May we be found trusting in Him and obeying Him and living for Him when He comes living in his grace. Jesus said this in Luke 21, 34 through 36. He said, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things 
that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. Escape the wrath of God. Escape the just punishment that God will pour out. I do not believe that we will, uh, that we're promised that we're going to escape mocking or avoid the persecution from the world. I think we're promised that that will happen. But we are promised that we will escape the judgment of God. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. God has provided a way of escape. It's cool that all of the Jewish scriptures, they foretold, they foreshadowed that God would send a Savior, a Messiah, to save us from our sins, to save us from judgment. There's a way of escape, but it's only for the humble. Only the humble find it. Only the humble are looking for it. Only the humble can receive it. Many of you are are probably familiar with Isaiah 53. Again, Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus came to earth, uh, died. But I want to take time this morning to read it in its entirety. Uh, I was going to try to just quote a couple verses, and then I couldn't find which ones I wanted to take out. So we're going to read the whole thing. Uh, If you haven't heard it before, um, it's God teleprompting to the world what is going to happen. How he planned to save the world from their sin. And this is happening throughout every Old Testament book in prophecies and foreshadowings. Um, The Torah, the law, the prophets, the wisdom literature. And here Isaiah 53 says, Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, and yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had not deceived anyone, but he was buried Like a criminal, he was put in a rich man's grave. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants, and he will enjoy a long life. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. 
And because of his experience, my righteous servant will, be, will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and he interceded for rebels. Friends, Jesus is our way of escape. The humble will take refuge in him and his finished work. Jesus is our ark, per se. Noah got into the ark. Jesus is our ark. And we ought not take to grant that we live in the age of grace and that the door is open for the humble to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But that door will not always be open. We're in the age of grace right now, but the age of judgment is coming. Jesus wants us to be filled with his spirit, trusting in him. Paul said in Hebrews 3, 12 through 15, he said, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. We're either standing under God's mercy or we're standing under his judgment. There's not another place to stand. There's no other ground. Your and my greatest works of virtue are as sewer eggs before a perfect God. If we stand in our own merit, we stand condemned. But if we stand in Christ, we stand in mercy and grace. And more than that, we stand forgiven. We stand born again. We're turned from self-reliant worldly mortals into God-reliant heavenly immortals who will inherit a new body and will receive reward immeasurable. It's a cool thing. God is kind. God likes you. God likes me. He loves me and he likes me, both. And he sent his son to die for me and for you, to forgive us of all our sin, to put his spirit in us and to teach us his ways. His ways are good and they're holy and they're right. And we might not understand them all. We might have some skewed perspectives on things. We might be confused. We might think we know what's right morally a lot of the times. We might think we know have a lot of the answers to things that we might be off on, myself included. God is the good shepherd. Jesus is the savior. He said he came to seek and save the lost. He said he came to lay down his life for his friends. And that was God's heart from the beginning. That we would become a people, that he would have a people that would come to him and receive grace and mercy, and that he would put his own spirit inside of us, give us eternal life and a marvelous future to look forward to. 
Let's just stop right here just for a moment and let's pray right now. Lord, we recognize how fleeting and overrated the things of this world are. The ambitions, the goals, the priorities, the awards, the accolades, the esteem, the pomp and circumstance, Lord. We recognize how fleeting are the opinions of man, how futile. And we humble ourselves right now to acknowledge such. And we don't want to attempt to hide our sin from you or deny or excuse our thoughts or our behaviors, Lord, or justify them, Lord, but we just want to admit them and we want to find ourselves in your presence, Lord. We thank you for offering forgiveness to every single person on this earth. And Jesus, you said your blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. You said you would not deny anyone who comes to you in faith, Jesus. Lord, I ask even right now in this room that you fill each and every person, Lord, those with an ear to hear and those with a heart to receive with a special sense of your presence and your joy right now. Amen. God is kind to us. Number two, we should be looking forward. In light of everything that we've just talked about, Peter writes in in verse 11, he said, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, What holy and godly lives you should live. Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth as he promised. A world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceable lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. In light of the Lord's unexpected coming and what will happen at that time, in light of God's kindness to us, our focus and behaviors should look quite distinct. He says, holiness and godliness, we should be set apart for God. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a great price. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and through me. I've been set apart by God for his kingdom work. Many Christians need to awaken to this reality and have a paradigm shift. That I no longer call the shots. I no longer make the big decisions. I defer to the Lord. I don't plan my own life without consulting the Lord. I surrender my rights and desires and my life to him. Lord, what do you think? Lord, what would be honoring to you? Lord, How would you like me to respond? 
How would you like me to plan? Where would you like me to serve you? What school, what, what job, and how should I work? How should I be, Lord, for you? Jesus is not my slave. Jesus is my master. I do not tell him what I'm doing. I seek his will and I obey it. And he cares for me more than I care for myself. He's the good shepherd. But he's the master. And he's the king. Lena, our our littlest, our one-year-old, she comes up to me. Mom says, okay, give an M&M to dad. She holds the M&M. She walks over to me. And I'm here. And I'm excited. (laughs) Here you go. And she comes. And she comes. And we try again, we try again. She wants to give it to me, right? But when it comes down to it, I'll have the M&M. I'll have the M&M. And that's how a lot of us are with God is, yeah, I trust him and I love him and he's my master, but when something is important or on the line, I'm going to do what I think is best or what I feel that I want to do. God, help us. He's gracious with us. But we need to mature. We need to grow in the Lord. We need to grow. We need to grow in our ability to forgive. And Dave Ogren spoke about that last week. He didn't want to forgive his stepdad. You know? And forgiveness doesn't mean you trust them again, right? It doesn't mean you trust them again. If someone steals from the church, we're not going to make them the church financial <laughs> counter that in charge of the money at church, right? No. We'll forgive them, and we want what's best for them. We want them to grow, but we're not going to put... Forgiveness doesn't mean trust, but, but he had to forgive his dad. That means he's not going to take revenge on his dad. He's not going to wish the worst for his, his stepdad. He, 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 wanted to, he wants God's best for his dad. He wants his dad to, to recognize what he did, sure. But he really wants his dad to be forgiven by God and, and to experience life change in his heart. And then he won't be the same way. He'll be a different person. Dave talked about that last night, with, or last week, forgiveness. Being honest can we be honest? When there's little things that we, you know, there's incentive to hide things in our life. God wants us to be honest. We could run down the list of things. Godly, it doesn't really matter how frustrating of day I've had. God wants me to be gentle and understanding with my wife and kids. And so it's only by his spirit. And that's what Peter is saying. Guys, you know what? With what's in front of us and the day of the Lord at hand, we just don't have time to do or think otherwise. We don't want to waste time doing things our way. We don't have time. It's not worth it to hold grudges. We don't have time to hold so tightly to our stuff and to our lives. In three verses, in the original Greek, in the next three verses, it says, looking forward three times. Looking forward to the day of the Lord. Looking forward to the new heavens, the new earth. Do you think we should look forward to these things? Yes. Not looking around, not setting our eyes on the things of this world, but setting our sights upon heaven, setting our hearts upon him, desiring and hasting the day, hurrying the day along. I'm not, I'm not certain what that, that means. Um, obviously, we're to be eagerly and awaiting, working toward that end. Uh, Matthew 28, 14 says, 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Maybe that's part of it, in us shedding the, the, the light of Christ to those around us and to everyone we come in contact with. Jesus said in Luke 21, verses 25 through 28, There will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's heart failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift your heads because your redemption draws near. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, we're just going to read a couple. We're, we're running out of time. I'm going to read you a few more passages. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, who are dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That sounds like a fun ride, being caught up in the, caught up in the air like that. How about 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53? Paul writes, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and those who are living will be transformed. For our dying bodies will be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. I always get the picture of, of the caterpillar butterfly. Like, how did that happen? But in the blink of an eye, that's what will happen to us. We metamorphosized into immortal beings with superior bodies. There's so much going on. We've just touched on just a few things. There are hundreds and hundreds of passages and prophecies about the day of the Lord. And what happens during that time? The beginning of judgment, the millennial reign, a final battle where the people of the world attempt to fight against God. That's exciting. The passing away of the first heaven and the first earth, the replacing of it with a new heaven and a new earth. We could spend a lot of time discussing Zechariah 14. You might write that chapter down. Prophecies of Daniel, the entire book of Revelation. But Peter says, make every effort to be found living peaceable lives. The actual, the Greek says, make every effort to be found at peace with him with God. We're living in peace with God because we're dependent upon his son. We're allowing his son to live in and through us. We're allowing him to correct us when we need correcting. We're living in humility and honesty with him and letting his grace and mercy cover us and lead us. And finally, number three this morning, another reminder, secure your footing. Peter continues 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, he says, And remember 
Our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom of God, the wisdom God gave him. Speaking of these things in all his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do the other parts of Scripture, and this will result in their destruction. Again, the reason Christ has not returned yet is that the fullness of the times is not yet complete. It may be very close, but it is not yet. God still knows of people who will humble themselves, and he intends to save them. He is long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, but all to repent. Peter refers to Paul, who often emphasizes this fact. Romans 2.4 says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? There's a guy in the Old Testament. uh, He was one of the kings of Judah um, later on in the lineage. And he has the longest reign of any king that reigned in Jerusalem. And his name was Manasseh. Manasseh began reigning when he was 12 years old. He reigned for 55 years. That's a long presidency, don't you think? 55 years. Um, That puts him at 67 years of age. He was the most wicked king of Judah, shed much innocent blood. He seduced his nation into the greatest evils of their existence. The army of the king of Assyria took Manasseh with hooks and bronze fetters, and he brought him to Babylon. 2 Chronicles 33, 12 through 13 says this, Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him, and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Here's someone in their 60s, late 60s, humbling themselves, and God readily bestowing mercy upon him, which is what he wants to do for us through Christ. Peter says that some of Paul's comments are hard to understand, and um, some of that may be due to, to Paul was writing primarily to Gentiles. Peter had spent most of his time up to that point with Jewish people, so there's different audiences Um, Another reason could well be that readers attempt to interpret portions of Paul's letters apart from the context of the whole or apart from the other letters that he wrote in a series. Sometimes he was writing correspondence, so they'd write a letter, he'd write a letter, they'd write a letter, and he'd be answering different things, so forth. What we don't want to do is to become careless interpreters and self-serving translators, for then we'd be guilty of altering God's word. That should scare you and I, and that's happening a lot today in our culture. There's a lot of twisting of God's word to suit agendas right now. Picking verses out and putting them together in such a manner, we're fashioning a God after our own desires instead of taking taking God for who he is and what he's saying. We need to be students of the word of God. And um, it's an important thing. 
There's a lot of verses we could talk about there, but uh, we'll just look at one. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And you can continue reading that passage on your own. Final passage today, 2 Peter 3, 17 through 18. You already know these things, dear brothers, dear friends. So be on guard then, and you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever. Amen. Secure footing. Secure footing is important, uh, especially when you're rock climbing. I don't know if you've ever rock climbed before in your life, gone to one of those places, and, and you're, there's these little nubs to hold on to. I would put cinder blocks on there if I was creating those walls, but nope, just little nubs. And you got to put your size 14 foot on the nub and try to support your body and have, it's not secure footing, but Peter's saying, you need to make sure that your footing is secure. You need to just stay eyes glued on Jesus Christ and in a, and nurturing your relationship with him your whole life. That's your secure footing. That's the high ground. That's your rock of salvation. You stand on Jesus Christ. And any wind and any wave and any tornado, you'll be safe if you're standing on Jesus. And so he concludes and says, keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. He is your best friend. You spend time with him and you tell him all of your concerns and all your needs. And you lean all your weight on him. And you surrender everything to him. Let him take care of you. Let him use you for his glory in the world. Use you for his kingdom to make him known, to shed his love and his truth throughout culture. Dear God, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of Second Peter and how Peter was encouraging the church, Lord, how he was warning them of false prophets, Lord, how he was telling us and informing us of the day of the Lord, a day of reckoning, how he was telling people of your kindness and your goodness. Thank you, God. Lord, I ask you to remind us of these things, Lord, as we go about our week today by your Holy Spirit. You'd remind us, you continue to teach us, Lord. Lord, we find ourselves in you. You are our sure footing, Lord, our secure footing. We thank you, Lord, for Ken and Tara Bright, Lord, in their story and what you've done in their life, God. And I pray special strength upon them, Lord, in the years that come. Lord, we thank you for making them pillars, Lord, influencers, Lord, for your kingdom. Thank you for their family, Lord, and their testimony and their example, Lord. Pray you just fill them with all kinds of new life and new vision, Lord, for the years ahead. And do that for all of us, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.